0: You're going to love this. Just love it. That's
1: what they always say.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight I got the feeling that something right I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair this clouds to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you, yeah I am, yes I'm stuck in the middle with you,
1: from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, so this is your broadcast as heard on 90.7 There's FM place. in LA. FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. KAKU 88.5 FM, the voice of Maui. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes. Streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio. Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, glad you could join us today for well, it's another action-packed thrilling adventure. As it is every day here on the broadcast, and we are glad you can join us for it. Um we have uh before I start here, I have been welcoming our newest affiliate KAKU 88.5 FM, the voice of Mau- Maui. Aloha Maui, glad to have you on board. I've been uh, mentioning you, but I haven't given you a proper welcome, so I wanted to do that, uh give you a proper aloha. Uh, To uh, the good folks of Maui, another great Pacifica Radio Network affiliate, by the way, out there located in Kahului. I think I'm saying it correctly. Uh, And uh, as per tradition, of course, we will be coming out uh, to the new affiliate, and (laughs) broadcasting every day there for several months. Just to, you know, as we always do. We always do that for every affiliate. Uh, hi, Desi Doyen, hi. by the way, our producer Desi Doyen. Are you ready to go to, uh, to yeah, Maui? Yeah,
2: I am so ready to go to Maui. You have no idea. I figured
1: you might <laughs> be. Uh, and, and by the way, is it right to say, you know, because I say coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. Uh, when we say coast to coast, that, that doesn't really include Hawaii, does I
2: think it? they're okay with that. Are they? Probably. Right. They don't really have a choice. All
1: right. No, they don't. But at least they're uh, carrying the broadcast every day. That's the important thing. So exactly. My thanks to uh, to Shaggy Jenkins and uh, mahalo to all the good folks at KAKU for listening to us in Kahului, Maui. Who knows if I said it right? I don't. Like I said, we will have to go out to Maui to investigate. It's going to take some time. Uh, hope that's okay. We would love uh, hearing from you listeners out there. Of course, our email is Bradcast at bradblog.com and uh, and you can always uh, also get our attention by tweeting at us on the Twitters. We are the Brad blog uh, as uh, as are we over on the Facebook. We are also the Brad blog over there. If you're not following us, you should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, a lot of victories lately for environmentalists and uh, environmental activists. Uh, really, seriously, big, big victories kind of all over the place. From uh, from the Obama administration's rejection not too many weeks ago of Arctic drilling permits. To his uh, to his rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline project to uh, also to uh, uh, several new investigations and, and possible prosecutions. Of uh, of big coal outfits like Peabody Coal, we discussed that on our Green News Report. Was that this week? That yes, I it have was. lost track. It has been uh, the past week has been just a blur. Uh, Peabody Coal got uh, slapped with a uh, well, we'll call it a settlement, arguably even a slap on the wrist. But it's good to see people paying attention. Uh, uh, the slap on the wrist from uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman for lying. Peabody Coal did for lying to their investors and to the public about climate change. Um, also, new investigations into a big oil outfits like ExxonMobil, as we've been talking about uh, quite a bit lately on this show. Uh, so there's all of that, which seems to be good news for environmentalists. Also, Don Blankenship, uh, the uh, the very powerful, or at least once very powerful, Dark Lord of Coal, as they called him, He's been on on uh, on trial in West Virginia. Uh, he was the CEO of Massey Energy, the owner of the Upper Big Branch Mine, where 29 miners were killed in an explosion back in 2010, I think, was it?
2: Yes, it was 2010. It was a couple of weeks before the BP yeah. oil disaster, which is why... It lost all of the attention in the news uh, once, uh, of course, BP uh, blew up in the Gulf Coast. It
1: was a huge story, actually, with 29 miners killed. Everyone was paying attention until BP came along and that explosion uh, in the Gulf, which was so huge.
2: And killed 11
1: people. Killed 11 people, but kept going and going and going for so many months that a lot of people really forgot about that uh, horrible uh, uh, tragedy in the coal mine in uh, in the Upper Big Branch mine. And uh, so CEO uh, Don Blankenship, CEO of Massey, is now on trial. Is the trial for that specifically, uh, what happened at Upper Big Branch, or um, just uh, safety violations overall for Massey Energy?
2: I believe it is for that specific explosion mm-hmm. and that specific tragedy. Uh, and they're using his past, uh, Don, Mas- uh, Don Blankenship's past Uh, communications as CEO showing that he had little regard for minor safety and he put profits over his minor safety and and actually pushed them to work with less safety and actually encourage them to, to not follow safety rules in order to increase production and increase profits.
1: So. Impossible. These big yeah. fossil fuel companies, they are looking out for us. They're looking out for the people. They are only concerned. I've seen the commercials on TV. They are concerned. They want to make sure that we have enough energy to uh, make our coffee in the morning and, and drive to work each day. They
2: only have your best interests That's right. at heart.
1: That's right. And I can't believe you would even suggest otherwise, Desi Doyen, the, uh, uh, Massey Energy was purchased by Alpha Natural Resources, uh, and they have since declared bankruptcy. Which is, of course, due to uh, President Obama's war on coal. Everyone knows that. That's... <laughs> of course,
2: no, it's not true at all. It's natural no. gas and fracking that are killing coal. Ah, but,
1: okay. Well, that brings yeah. us to uh, what we're going to talk about in a few minutes with, uh, with my guest uh, a little bit later uh, in the program today because there was yet another big uh, victory for environmentalists this week and, uh, and arguably a big victory for the environment as well, I should add, but it was not did not get much coverage. This was a big victory on thursday as yet another major commercial fossil fuel pipeline was rejected was rejected this week even if it didn't get the coverage that you know TransCanada's proposed now rejected keystone xl pipeline received uh of course that pipeline that was just a week ago seems like forever ago but it was just a, a about a week ago that the that the Keystone XL pipeline was finally rejected by, uh, by President Obama. He determined it was not in the nation's interest to ship dirty tar sands from Canada across several states, across a major uh, drinking water and agricultural water aquifer down uh, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. But, uh, but, but the victory for environmentalists was a pretty big one. Uh, this week, when a different fossil fuel pipeline was rejected by a different executive this week, how's that for a teaser, <laughs> in in a move that uh frankly seems to have surprised the fossil fuel industry and it seems to me really could signal, along with the rejection of Keystone and, and all of these other victories, uh, this could mark yet... Well, another turning point, a big turning point in uh, in the nation against fossil fuels and towards clean energy, towards clean, renewable energy. Um, I mean, this was really a a strike against fossil fuels and a strike in favor of clean, renewable energy at the same time. We're going to talk with uh, Natural Resources uh, uh, Defense Council's Kit Kennedy. About that big news that flew largely under the radar on Thursday. So I don't know. You may have heard of it somewhere else, but probably not because it hasn't been covered. Also, uh, I want to get Desi. I don't even know if you know about this. The biggest entertainment launch of the year.
2: No, I don't know. Is Wait. all
1: is all about climate change. No. The big, Swear to God. the really? biggest Yeah. Do you know anything about this?
2: Well, it's, it, I was going to say know? Star Wars, but I'm pretty sure Star Wars doesn't have anything about that. Are you sure? No,
1: we'll find out. We'll find out a little bit later in in uh, in the program as well. So all of that is ahead. But there was some uh, CIA news, Uh, two different CIA related stories that I uh, that I want to get to that uh, sort of uh, came out over the past uh, 24 hours or so. Uh, In an explosive revelation during an interview with Politico, former CIA director, Uh, During uh, President George W. Bush's administration. That's not me calling him president. That's this story calling him president. Uh, Anyway, uh, during the Bush administration, the CIA director claims that his department informed White House officials over impending al-Qaeda attacks months, months before the president received the infamous bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. briefing. Now we've we've sort of known about this, but this is sort of filling in more details. It seems to me, and what happened in the months leading up, not just to 9/11, but to the warning in uh, in early August of uh, 2001 that uh, Bin Laden was determined to strike in the U.S. This is according to ex-CIA head George Tenet and Kofer Black, who was then chief of the CIA's counterterrorism center. They had called an emergency meeting with National Security Advisor Condi Rice uh, in early July of 2001 saying that they had evidence. They had evidence that an attack on the U.S. was imminent and that it would be, quote, spectacular. Beginning in May of 2001, earlier that year, Tenet and Black launched an initiative called the Blue Sky Paper, pitched it, To Bush's national security team, this would have been just, well, a a few months, about three or four months after uh, Bush had been sworn in in 2001. Uh, The CIA called for a joint CIA and military campaign to end the al-Qaeda threat. And now uh, George Tenet says uh, the word came back that, uh, quote, we're not quite ready to consider this. We don't want the clock to start ticking, meaning they did not want a paper trail. They did not want to, uh, you know, have a record that they had said uh, no to this, uh, or that they had, you know, started the project but put it off for several months. So in July of that year, after receiving more confirmations of upcoming attacks, Tennant and Kofer demanded an immediate meeting with Rice. Tenet remembers uh, that uh, Rich Blee, I'm not sure who Rich Blee is here, but he started by saying there will be significant terrorist attacks against the United States in the coming weeks or months. The attacks will be spectacular. They may be multiple. Al Qaeda's intention is the destruction of the U.S. According to Tenet, Condi Rice said, well, what do you think we need to do? And uh, uh, Koper Black responded by slamming his fist on the table and saying, quote, we need to go on a wartime footing now. When asked what happened after that meeting, Black said, oh, nothing much. He said, yeah, what did happen? To me, it remains incomprehensible still. I mean, how is it that you could warn senior people so many times and nothing actually happened? It's kind of like the Twilight Zone, Black said. Uh, I, uh, you know, and and this is just amazing to me when we hear because we, we hear it again. This is uh, I don't know how old now, 15 years at this point. Uh, but, you know, we're hearing now in the presidential race that George W. Bush, he kept us safe. He kept us safe. How can they even say that, even if you make the best case scenario for for the Bushes? That, uh, oh, you know, gosh, uh, who, who could have known uh, there would be this attack? Uh, well, even if they didn't know, there were still 3,000 people killed on their watch in that on that one day alone. But clearly, they did know. Clearly, they were warned. And we heard, you know, for years, Richard Clark has been saying this. They were trying to get their attention. They were trying to let them know. And they were telling them and they were doing nothing about it. Nothing. Putting it off. Okay, fine. That's what they did. But don't come back 15 years later, Jeb Bush, and say, my brother kept us safe. He didn't. He did the opposite. Uh, He was the commander-in-chief during the worst terrorist attack on this nation ever. And he was warned about it. And he was warned about it time and time again. And he did not take action. The administration did not take action. The administration did not keep us safe. They did just the opposite. George Tenet uh, remembers a quote. We were just thinking about all of this and trying to figure out how this attack might occur. Again, this is before 9-11. George Tenet, CIA director. How could this attack might occur? And he says, and I'll never forget until this. Uh, I'll never forget this until the day I die. Rich Blee looked at everybody and said, quote, they're coming here. And the silence that followed was deafening. You could feel the oxygen come out of the room. They're coming here, he said. And then nothing was done. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who, who obviously, you know, for years, they could climb 9 was an inside job, this and that, uh, you know, whatever. Investigate. Uh, I, I never uh, poo-poo any investigations of anything. Investigate all you want. Uh, I think that's fine. And I'm, I'm, you know, always happy to see what information is out there. Uh, I have not been particularly persuaded by the inside job notion. It seems to me. Uh, what happened and the reason they were so uh, co- seemingly covering things up after 9-11, making uh, the president uh, so unavailable to the 9-11 commission. You know, I think he, he testified for an hour in private, in secret with Dick Cheney in the room. Contrast that to the 11 hours of open testimony that Hillary Clinton uh, did a, few, uh, a couple of weeks ago before the uh, uh, Republican Benghazi Witch Hunt Committee in in Congress, Um, it always seemed to me that, you know, they had plenty of reason to not want to focus on what happened in the events leading up to 9-11 because they screwed up. They screwed up in a big way. And they're embarrassed about it. Uh, That seems to me the simplest explanation, and it is, uh, you know, time and time again... uh, underscored by information that we get of what happened in the lead-up to 9-11. They knew about it, and they took no action. That was the Bush CIA. And then there's the Obama CIA. This also in today, the CIA's targeted killing program has long been shrouded in secrecy. This is the drone program. Recent leaks given to The Intercept... As well as through reporting by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, have shed light on the executions of such attacks. But interviews with former CIA directors for an upcoming documentary puts the ethical quandaries of the program, which has few regulations, in stark relief, according to Justin Salah, uh, Salhani at Think Progress. Uh, his report over there uh, cites Leon Panetta and an incident. Uh, who, who was uh, himself a CIA director from 2009 to 2011, before he became the uh, Secretary of Defense. He recounts a decision uh, over targeting, uh, well, over targeted drone killing where innocent people were involved. Uh, he said that there was a, a situation where they had a target. They weren't sure what to do because this target was surrounded by his wife and children. And uh, John Brennan, who left the uh, uh, he was the White House counterterrorism advisor at the time, he left the decision up to uh, Panetta how to proceed. And uh, he's quoted in this documentary saying uh, the White House said, look, you're going to have to make a judgment here. So I knew at that point it was a a decision that I was going to have to make. I'm the one who's going to have to. Say Hail Mary's here. Suddenly I found that I was making decisions on life and death as the director of the CIA. And those are never easy. And frankly, they shouldn't be, he says. But I felt it was uh, really important in that job to do what I could to protect this country. So I passed on the word. I said, if you can isolate the individual and take the shot without impacting on women or children, then do it. But if you have no alternative and it looks like he might get away, then take the shot. And he said, eventually, it did involve collateral damage, but we got him. In the end, says Panetta, what you do has to be based on what your gut tells you is right. You have to be true to yourself, and hopefully, ultimately God agrees with you, etc., etc. In fewer words, Panetta gave the go-ahead on a strike that he knew would kill innocent children. So they knew who this individual was. Panetta, you know, says he was a bad guy. He was. uh, We don't know who this is. We don't know. You know, we can't check his work on this. He was clearly a leader who had been involved not only in going after our officers, but in killing members of our own forces in Afghanistan. But the individual had a family and wife and children around him. So the tough question was, what should we do? Well, what they did was apparently they killed him and his wife and kids. Now, that's not a war crime, I guess, according to uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, but it's uh, because they were principally targeting this terrorist, I guess. It, it's an interesting moral question, though, uh, and it's raised in this Think Progress article. Is killing innocent people, including children, an acceptable act of war? Uh, Defenders of the the, the targeted killing program argue that such attacks keep Americans safe. But, however, uh, to date, there is no evidence that drone strikes have made Americans or any other human beings safer. There's just no evidence to support it. And we don't even debate it. We don't even have this debate publicly Uh, in Congress. Congress has completely abdicated all of its uh, ability to declare war, just completely abdicated that to the president, and then they want to criticize the president for not doing a good enough job. But they don't come out, they don't argue about where we should or shouldn't be in war, how we should carry out these wars anymore. Acting CIA Director Michael Morell said that uh, the big picture is all of this, all of this, all of these attacks for which there is no evidence that we are safer, But all of these attacks uh, are a great victory for us and a great victory for them. Our great victory has been the degradation, decimation, near defeat of the al-Qaeda core that brought tragedy to our shores on 9-11. Really? But their great victory has been the spread of their ideology across a huge geographic area. Of course. So you got rid of al-Qaeda, but now we've got ISIS, which is bigger, badder, stronger. More powerful than Al-Qaeda, how can that be possibly be regarded as a victory for anyone, for anyone other than the people who uh, the ISIS, ISIL, Al-Qaeda. He says uh, CIA acting CIA director Morel says, what we haven't done a good job of is stopping new terrorists from being created. Oh, you don't say. And until we get our arms around that, this war is not going away. Right. And that's where we are. Former director George Tenet, who we uh, quoted in uh, the story about 9-11, said, you can't kill your way out of this. It's not sustainable. Well, it might not be, but it's certainly sustaining a whole hell of a lot of people in the uh, arms industry, in the defense uh, sector. They love it. It's certainly a big victory for them, if not for us. All right. A quick break. And we're back with uh, uh, the big good news, good news. <laughs> we have some good news today uh, out of New York State. Stay tuned for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> welcome back back to the new york groove back to the bradcast from los angeles uh i'm brad friedman uh thank you for joining us uh there was a big victory for environmental advocates in new york state on thursday you might not have heard about it because well frankly it received very little coverage nationally and and i think it actually deserves a bit more coverage. Uh, there has been a years-long fight over a a pipeline, not the Keystone XL pipeline, which received plenty of coverage in recent years, uh, leading to uh, President Obama's re- rejection of that dirty tar sands pipeline that would have stretched from Alberta, Canada's tar sands, down to the Gulf of Mexico. But this is a different pipeline, a liquefied natural gas pipeline that would have fed into Port Ambrose near Long Island and New York Harbor, the largest harbor on the East Coast, potentially disrupting commercial shipping, commercial fishing, uh, would serve as a security concern as uh, liquid natural gas infrastructure has been regarded as a potential vulnerability to terrorist attacks, and perhaps even more of a concern, to se- it would have threatened several proposed offshore wind projects That would have uh, taken up the same space in these uh, coastal waters off the coast of New York and New Jersey. Liberty Natural Gas's proposed offshore pipeline would have brought in natural gas in. It would have imported uh, to the U.S. from Trinidad and Tobago, parts of Africa, and from our own Gulf Coast. But the project was vetoed on Thursday, By New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who, as it turns out, like other governors, and I hadn't really realized this, actually has the power to veto projects in federal waters when those projects are adjacent to their states. The governor said uh, in rejecting this project on Thursday, he said this project presents risks to New York's security and economy while negatively impacting a critical renewable energy project. Those would be the proposed offshore wind farms. Together, he wrote, these unmitigated concerns cumulatively outweigh the project's intermittent impact on natural gas supply. Uh, Here to uh, decode all of this for us is Catherine Kitt Kennedy. She's the director of the energy and transportation program at the natural resources defense council and rdc she previously served as new york's new york state's special deputy attorney general for environmental protection and is a member of the executive committee of the new york state bar association's environmental law section kit kennedy welcome to the broadcast.
0: Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me on, and that was a great overview.
1: Oh, good. I hope I got everything right. Uh, wh- what were the main concerns? We'll get into some of these details in a second, but what were the main concerns about the Port Ambrose project from environmentalists up in, uh, in New York?
0: Well, this was a classic uh, David versus Goliath mm-hmm. uh, fight between dirty fossil fuels and renewable energy. Uh, and in this case, uh, Goliath went down, renewable energy has prevailed uh, over fossil fuel, and it is a huge victory. So uh, there were many, many concerns uh, raised about the Port Ambrose uh, liquefied natural gas terminal, which would have been located in the water about a, more than a dozen miles south of uh, Long Island South Shore. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, local residents, elected officials, fishermen, environmentalists of all stripes came together not only to oppose the project, but to support an offshore wind project uh that was proposed for the same site. Both of the projects couldn't move forward. There was a, a physical conflict and, and uh just a, Just an operational conflict around trying to crowd both projects into one marine site, mm. so all of these groups came together and raised a whole host of uh, concerns that Brad that you summarized concerns about security, concerns about uh, fishing, concerns about shipping, and from my perspective, there was this crucial concern about whether this offshore wind project could move forward. And in vetoing the project yesterday, Governor Cuomo said the risks uh, exceeded the reward of the project, and he cited all of those reasons, including the need to move forward with the offshore wind project, as reasons to veto the project.
1: As I understand, as I was looking into this, and and like I say, it's kind of amazing that this uh, hasn't gotten much national attention. I guess Keystone XL sort of sucked up all of the... National oxygen, the media can only cover one environmental uh, controversy at a time, I guess. Uh, but this pipeline, as I'm looking at it, it wasn't even for an immediate need, it seems. It was rather an anticipated need, uh, if I understand it correct, uh, correctly. In the future, uh, you know, as energy needs uh, grow in New York, we've already got a, natu- uh, a natural gas boom in this country thanks to fracking. Why... Why would we have needed to import natural gas at all from other co- I mean from Africa? What was that about?
0: It was very mysterious and hard to understand. Uh, as you say, uh there is a natural gas glut in mm-hmm. the United States at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh there's been a reduction a steep reduction in the uh in importing uh LNG And uh, the New York State Energy Plan uh, has noted that there's a reduced need for imported LNG, yet this uh, project was proposed anyway. So the need for the project was not supported. And and was very
1: unclear. Uh, And and in the meantime, you've got uh, the possibility of a clean, renewable energy project in the same space. Are there any comparable numbers here? In other words, would this uh, liquefied natural gas have been uh, far more efficient, been able to power far more houses than any project proposed uh, for for wind farms offshore out there?
0: Well, it's a bit of an apples and oranges comparison, uh, you know, natural gas versus offshore wind. But what we do know is that New York has set an ambitious new renewable electricity goal. New York is aiming to get 50 percent of its electricity from renewable energy resources by uh, 2030. Mm -hmm. And in order to meet that goal, we're going to need more of every type of renewable energy, more solar, more wind on land. And we're definitely going to need to tap into the strong offshore winds off our coast. So the need for the offshore wind project and, and other projects like it mm-hmm. is absolutely there. Uh,
1: I, I was looking at, uh, what was this, uh, Natural Gas Intelligence, one of these uh, industry uh, uh, you know advocate uh, websites. They were talking about this project just one month ago. This was back October fourteen. Uh, They write, the clock now starts. I guess it it, it received... Uh, an empire, uh, environmental impact statement approval from uh, the federal entities. In this case, uh, they wrote the clock starts now on a 45-day period during which the New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie may comment on the project or veto it altogether. Liberty Natural Gas CEO Roger Wheelan said, uh, adding that he does not expect a veto from either governor. Well, apparently. Uh, Mr. Whelan was terribly wrong. Uh, so what happened there? How did that all change from 30 days ago when it was going to be smooth sailing for this project uh, to the governor deciding to veto it? Or was Whelan just being uh, incredibly positive to his his fans in the uh, fossil fuel media there?
0: Well, I don't think Port Ambrose fully understood the extent of the opposition to the project uh the the seriousness of the concerns about it and the fact that elected officials at all level, uh uh community, uh legislative, mm-hmm. statewide, uh, were, were really concerned about this project. Um and you have to give a lot of credit to Governor Andrew Cuomo, who looked at every factor, he and his staff, as he explained yesterday, uh, examined it from all sides, looked at all the arguments, reached the determination that the risks of the project uh, exceeded uh, the rewards, and went ahead and vetoed it uh, very early in the process. Um, And so kudos to Governor Cuomo for taking that bold step, and his veto ends the project. Uh as you were saying, Brad, under under the the federal law which governs this type of a project, uh the federal government makes the decision but needs to get the approval of the adjacent states and if one state vetoes the project, that's it. So after Governor Cuomo's veto yesterday, the Port Ambrose project is dead in the water.
1: I'm I'm speaking with NRDC's Catherine Kitt, Kennedy. Uh is it unusual, Kit, for a, a governor to veto a federal project like this? Does that does that happen a lot? I wasn't even aware that they had that right to, to to do that.
0: So with this type of uh uh marine port facility, the federal law allows governors to veto projects, and this is by by no means uh the first veto. Uh, first of all, uh, a bunch of years ago, there was an earlier version of this same project proposed that was closer to New Jersey than to New York, and Governor Christie actually vetoed the project at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, governors of other states have also vetoed similar projects when concerns were raised. So, um, this, this is not the first veto, but it's, this veto sends a really important message because there was this conflict between offshore wind and fossil fuels, and thanks to Governor Cuomo's veto, uh, the offshore wind project can proceed.
1: is this a turning point as you see it? we've had now within the past week uh, two projects that you know a, a, even a year or two ago would have uh, you know perhaps received just sort of routine approval uh the Keystone XL and uh, now this pipeline can we read anything into what's going on here kit is is this a turning point is this some sort of a, a, a tipping point moment when our country our, our elected officials are saying you know what no more if we're going to do new energy projects they are going to be clean projects i realize you can't you know predict the future but are are we seeing something different here than we've seen in the past kit
0: this is an incredibly exciting time to be working on climate and clean energy issues in the united states and and brad i think it is a turning point we have all sorts of of major decisions going the way of of clean energy from president obama's clean power plan which came out over the summer it's mm-hmm. going to require uh... carbon pollution limits for power plants for the first time to the keystone decision as you mentioned uh and, and Governor Cuomo is just all in on climate and clean energy um, uh as we prepare for the climate talks in Paris. Uh and you see local officials like Mayor de Blasio also uh stepping up the commitments to clean energy and climate so and this is not just in New York, it's 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 obviously across the United States. Um uh, so I think it is a tipping point um uh, and we're gonna see our country take strong action to to fight climate pollution and to build up the clean energy economy.
1: Uh, uh, Should uh, environmental impact statements, the one we saw, for example, with the Keystone XL and now this one with Port Ambrose, in both cases, uh, they sort of came back from the uh, federal entities saying that, well, the environmental impact would be minimal. Uh, Is it your feeling, uh, Kit, as an environmental attorney for so many years now with the NRDC, that these, these impact statements, should they be broader than they currently are? Rather than you know just looking at the immediate risk to the immediate environment, uh, which, which might be minimal, should we look at the broader global environmental uh, impact, the climate impact? Should that come into play in these projects, or should they stay as they are where they're just focused on the immediate environmental impact as you see it?
0: Uh, well, definitely environmental review should include a, uh, uh, a thorough look at climate impacts, both the impact of the project in, in terms of climate pollution and also how the project's going to fare uh, if the world warms in terms of resiliency mm. uh, to to climate-related weather impacts. So that's a definite. Environmental review should absolutely be looking at climate impacts and uh, they're required to do so, and 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 uh, and, and you're seeing as time goes on, uh, environmental review increasingly taking climate into account. So I think here with with the Port Ambrose project, I, I don't think it's fair to say the the feds uh, had said there was there would be no environmental impact. Um, I, I think. The issue really was when you lay out all the environmental impacts and all the other impacts, does the project provide uh, a net benefit or a net impact? Um, And again, Governor Cuomo found correctly that the risks of the project were greater than any possible benefit, pointing to all the concerns the security concerns, the impact on fishing, and importantly the conflict with offshore wind
1: my uh i've got one more uh, uh item i want to toss at you here but i know my uh, producer desi doyan uh, she's our uh, managing editor on our green news report which we uh, syndicate nationally concerning issues of this sort i know she has a, a question for you does uh,
2: yes kit really quick i know that this uh this was a years in the making process um are there any uh tools or tips or advice that you have for other groups who are working on other local and state-level issues like this to try to uh, stop these sort of large fossil fuel infrastructure projects from being started?
0: Well, absolutely. And First of all, I want to make clear, it was a great honor for NRDC and myself to participate in this battle, but the effort was really led by community and local groups who banded together and said, we're going to say no to this project, and yesterday I had the the real joy of of being in Long Beach, this uh beautiful small town community uh on on Long Island, and the whole town gathered uh to hear the governor's speech and watch him sign the veto letter. There were school children uh there were moms, there were activists, there were elected officials there were fishermen it was a great feeling of a town coming together with all sorts of uh... state and local and national environmental groups to celebrate their victory so i think the the message here uh... to others faced with similar projects is first of all don't give up don't think it's impossible band together reach out for other allies and uh... make your voice be heard
1: and uh, your joy at that ceremony was evident in some photographs. You were actually at the veto, and you could tell that the uh, the folks there were quite happy about that victory. Uh, before I let you go, Kit, uh, we spoke on this program yesterday with Sharon Eubanks. I don't know if you know her or not. She was the lead prosecutor for the DOJ uh, in their case against Big Tobacco back in the uh, in the late 90s and, and mid-2000s. Uh, we, we talked to her about the possibility of A similar case, similar RICO conspiracy case against ExxonMobil. Now that we know that they knew about climate change decades ago and sort of obscured their own science, spent millions to mislead the public. Uh, Sharon Eubanks noted that uh, some of the impetus for that federal case and the big tobacco case came from state cases against the tobacco industry. And now the question concerns a similar case against Exxon. New York Attorney General, and I know you worked in the New York Attorney General's office, Uh, the New York Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, has recently taken up some similar cases. Uh, One seems to have resulted in a settlement over the past week that uh, really I, I see as slightly more than a slap on the wrist, if that much, against Peabody Coal, one of the largest coal producers in the nation, for lying to the public about climate change. And now Schneiderman is subpoenaing documents from ExxonMobil in an investigation as to whether they misled the public and investors. Do you have any insight uh, on what the Peabody case might tell us about the outcome of a similar case against Exxon uh, in New York under Attorney General Schneiderman and is he really serious about accountability for for these uh, for these companies like Exxon?
0: I think the uh, the the investigations that uh, the attorney general are is, is is undertaking are really, really important and really significant. Um and uh the New York Attorney General has a has a, a very unique uh legal tool to use called the Martin Act, mm-hmm. um, which allows his office to launch investigations uh into basically uh investor fraud situations uh uh disclosure fraud situations and in particular the Exxon investigation is uh really significant it seems to me because uh, there there is information emerging which which could suggest that Exxon knew the risks of climate change some time ago and and uh Mm -hmm. did not disclose them and and suppress them. So that's the analogy to the tobacco cases which Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Sharon was was bringing out on your show. So I think the investigation of Exxon is um, really significant. Really interesting. We'll just have to see where it goes. Um,
1: but is It's, it's
0: possible to tell, you know, at the, at the start of an investigation where it's going to go?
1: Well, of course. Uh, but d- do you feel he's serious about accountability? I mean, I, w- I was kind of disappointed, I must say, in that settlement with, with Peabody Cole. It, you know, it seemed like a slap on the wrist. Oh, just please don't do it again. Let everybody know you lied. Uh, And that was that I I just I'm wondering uh, if if a a state investigation uh, like this will be enough or if we need to rely on federal prosecutors to take, you know, some real action akin to that uh, big tobacco case a decade or so ago. Well,
0: well, Brad, I, I think Attorney General Schneiderman is 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 very dedicated to climate protection uh, he's leading a group of states and, and cities to uh, intervene in the challenges to EPA's Clean Power Plan to defend the Clean Power Plan. He's using these tools um, uh, in a very creative way. So I think he's absolutely serious. Uh, and we'll, again, you know, we'll see where Exxon goes. Uh, I do think the, the 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 actually the Peabody settlement is is quite significant. Um and ask your question about whether the fed should be taking action too, uh... look i mean i think uh... that the justice department should be looking at these issues um, and uh... as well as other uh, attorneys general it's it's a it's a moment to really focus on these issues um, and again um, uh, we'll just see where these investigations take us.
1: Well, Kit, I greatly appreciate your work on this. So I'm going to take some comfort from uh, f- from your confidence, at least, in Attorney General Schneiderman there uh, as this case moves forward. Uh, it, it, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for the good work that you're doing out there. And congratulations, uh, I think, are due here for for your big victory. I know you've been working on this for, for quite a while to... to to get that uh, that liquid natural gas uh, port shut down, and and it looks like you have succeeded. So congratulations to you and uh, and all the advocates and activists out there in in New York, Kit.
0: Thank you, Brad. It was a huge team effort, and and I was honored to be part of it.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today on the broadcast. Greatly appreciated. We will bother you again near uh, in the near future, I'm sure.
0: Please do. Thanks, Brad.
1: You bet. Thank you. All right, a quick break, and we are back with uh, oh, the biggest entertainment launch of the year is actually all about climate change. Who knew? Well, you will soon. I'm Brad. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com with you here. And, uh, oh, we all have Star Wars fever. I know it. (laughs) I know it's coming up soon. And Desi Doyen, you had guessed at the top of this program that the biggest entertainment launch of the year, I I said, I, I teased That it was all about climate change, and you guessed it would be Star Wars.
2: Yeah, that's because to me that would be the thing that would probably qualify as the biggest entertainment launch of the year. But hey, you know, okay, so I I guess, is that it?
1: Well, that hasn't launched yet. So it could end up being the biggest launch of the year. But for now, uh, it is not Star Wars, despite our shamelessly playing the theme song to make people sit up and pay attention. Uh, As a vice is reporting climate change is routinely called the biggest threat humanities ever faced but pop culture missed the memo uh there uh, still hasn't been a whole hell of a lot of climate movement in our most watched media film tv or video games but over the past week we saw a bit of progress on that courtesy of call of duty yes the new call of duty video game oh uh, this is uh, Brian Merchant writing over at, uh, at uh, Vice. Uh, points out that the most persistent enemy in the latest installment of the franchise is actually climate change. the da- The game takes place in a globally warmed twenty sixty five. Players face environmental extremes wherever they go. Oh wow! Dust storms in Egypt, floods and hurricane winds in Singapore, and so on. And Call of Duty is huge. You may not know it, Desi Doyen.
2: because I don't play Call of Duty. <laughs> well, I was
1: going to say because you're an old lady, but uh, that yeah, was. I'm not uh, a big but what you gamer, put it is true. much nicer. Uh, this is, and now I'm going to get in trouble for calling you an old that's lady. Right. It's because I'm an old man. All right, uh, this series uh, is uh, routinely beats out summer blockbusters at the box office, and uh, it has uh, nearly reached as many. Uh, 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 has 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 nearly as much reach as any fiction franchise going. And uh, the latest installment is already the biggest entertainment launch of 2015. According to IGN and Fortune, it has pulled in five hundred and fifty million dollars in its first three days, which is huge. That's huge money. Um, So uh, they say, think of it this way, the biggest entertainment launch of 2015 Uh, forces players to interact with and endure a climatically transformed world in a reasonably realistic fashion.
2: Well, that is what they um, they say. When I say they, I mean like cultural writers, they, especially people yes. who are writing on you know climate fiction mm-hmm. in novels right now. They're basically saying that that that's how you help people understand not just you know the science mm-hmm. of it and the facts of it, but you help them immerse themselves in in what it will feel like.
1: They say climate change is omnipresent in this game. It's an obstructive force. It's something you have to deal with constantly. You're forced to experience the environment that will likely uh, come to pass if warming continues unmitigated. You will wade through floodwaters, wade out that dust storm. It will aggravate and annoy you. You are forced to feel climate change. Interesting.
2: Although you can't shoot at it and kill climate change, so I don't know how. I hope it's successful even if you can't Mm -hmm. You know, have a first person shooter response to climate change.
1: They say the more that audiences engage with the climate issue, which is notoriously tough to get folks to uh, to do, uh, given global warming's pervasiveness and seemingly long unfolding time frame. The more that uh, they have to deal with it, the more they might internalize and respond to it. Well, so and I'm especially you'd be happy about yeah, that.
2: I am happy to hear that, especially because uh, you know millennials who are the bigger gamers anyway, folks under the age of thirty-four are going to be the ones who have to deal with the uh, long tail of this uh, looming, looming situation that we have coming. So <laughs> well, maybe that'll that be good nicely. to give them some uh, some practice at it.
1: Uh, indeed. I, well, it'll it'll reach a lot of people. Yes, and, and I suspect important. they will notice uh, so that that could have kind of a bigger effect than, uh, you know, there's a lot of films that have tried to come out and deal with the issue and they've kind of been box office flops, many of them. So this is going to get to a lot of people. Uh, speaking of wind farms, since we were talking about offshore wind farm in the pat in the previous segment with Kate Kennedy uh, in Texas, in Texas, of all places. Wind farms are now generating so much energy that some utilities are giving the power away for free across the state of Texas.
2: Pretty wild, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's really cool that they're they're saying that if you do your your laundry, if you use, you know, your utilities after 9 p.m. This is someone in in Dallas I think talking about this. Uh that the energy will be free after 9 p.m because they've got so much extra energy.
2: Right. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's a neat thing that uh, different utilities around the country are trying, mm-hmm. which is uh, what they call load shifting or demand shifting where you let customers know, "Hey, if you can push your if you can shift mm-hmm. your energy use to a different time, we'll give you a better price." And you know, it's off-peak pricing, for example. It's it's fairly common, but it's new to the utility industry. And it's both a good thing and a bad thing. In my opinion, because you know, of course, at night is when uh, the wind is very strong out in West Texas, mm-hmm. where most of these wind farms are. What I would rather they do is store that energy in mm-hmm. batteries mm-hmm. and then use it the next day when they have peak, when they need to mm-hmm. peaker plants, which they they only bring on at the last minute to, to 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 just meet extra demand. Those are there are plants that sit around in the country that that don't do anything unless they're called on immediately to meet a peak demand moment, and they sit there unused. This would prevent having to build plants that take care of that peak demand. If you just store it in batteries, then it's useful for you.
1: Texas has more wind power, apparently, than any other state, accounting for roughly 10 percent right now of the state's generation, and they are alone among the 48 contiguous states uh, in that uh, they run their own electricity grid, it barely connects to the rest of the country. So they've got all of this uh, abundant, as you say, the nightly wind power. You're from Texas, so you yep. know about that. Uh, the uh, The abundance of nightly wind power generated here must be consumed here. It right. can't be sent elsewhere. Right. Uh, and so uh, your suggestion, they uh, make that some they big, could, big old batteries. Yeah,
2: well, now. you know, Tesla is now putting out a utility-scale battery that is actually intended for... Utilities, that that's their size. You know, you get a bank of those. And when you have excess solar or excess wind, you store that. And instead of, you know, say on a summer afternoon in Texas, when temperatures rise over 100 degrees, everybody comes home from work. Everybody turns on their air conditioning at the same time and really shoots up the electricity usage in places like Texas then instead of firing up a natural gas plant or firing up a coal plant you just basically tap into the batteries from which you've stored during a time when people aren't using it but these are long term transformations to- ba-
1: baby steps look yeah, texas this is baby
2: steps this is a great way to do it it's a great way to get people involved and customers to think about how they can meet and exceed the the, the clean energy uh, economy that we're moving toward
1: the fact that this great state of Texas is now getting ten percent of their energy from from wind—that alone is, I think, a victory. Uh, wait yes. until they wait until they realize how great sun works too down there in Texas, <laughs> and how that's free.
2: Hopefully soon. Uh,
1: all right. Last point before we get out of here, uh, we have been talking over the past few weeks, of course, about uh, Volkswagen uh, scamming the emissions tests. They are in trouble. Uh, We had Steve Levine on the show a few weeks ago, uh, who's written a book about uh, batteries and uh, the the hunt for the holy grail of battery storage. He says that uh, Volkswagen can save themselves by going pretty much all electric. That may be where they're headed. But in the meanwhile, if you want to send a message to Volkswagen... Uh, head on down to your Volkswagen dealer because apparently they are not only slashing prices on all their cars, they are slashing prices on their electric model cars, like the e-Golf. Discounts of up to $11,000 on the wow. electric car. Yeah. Uh, Jetta hybrid prices slashed by some 6000 So if you're in the market for an electric car or a hybrid car, you want to send a message to uh, Volkswagen and, frankly, the auto industry. Now is a great time to go get one of those cars at a really cheap price and say, yeah, Volkswagen, we don't want your fossil fuel crap anymore, whether you lie about it or not. We'll take the electric car. Thank and they you.
2: say once you go electric, you never go back.
1: Well said. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Kit Kennedy of uh, of uh nrdc nrdc.org all right we're out of here we will see you soon until next time you can download any of our programs at bradblog.com or over at itunes you can send me email i am bradcast at bradblog.com uh, or you can get my attention on the twitters or the facebook's i am the Bradblog there use hashtag bradcast and i'll probably notice all right We'll see you soon. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.